Welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman, a podcast loaded with practical tips, powerful scripts, personal stories, and simple steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. So get ready to get the information you need to make the impact you want from someone you trust, your friend, parenting expert, Dr. Robin Silverman. Hello and welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything, where we give you the tips, scripts, stories, and steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. I'm so honored to be your host, Dr. Robin Silverman, Child and Teen Development Specialist, author and speaker, and most importantly, parent of two great kids who give me the opportunity to love, learn, and grow every single day, whether I want to or not. Believe me, I get it. It's not always easy, but we're in this together. We have some great people helping us along the way. Now, your, do your tweens worry that they don't fit in sometimes, feel insecure, wish that their lives looked as perfect as somebody else's on social media? Being a tween can be tough in today's world, especially during the past year of ups and downs, changes and question marks. Your tween is balancing a lot on their shoulders. Homework, extracurricular activities, chores, friendship drama, family, and all the growth and development all while trying to show the impression that they have it all together, that they know what they're doing. Sometimes while they attempt to look perfect on the outside, they feel kind of rotten on the inside. And today's podcast episode is all about strengthening that inner person, becoming a better and stronger person, takes some brain training. And brain training takes some tools so that they can get into that developing habits and building mental strength and taking actions towards becoming their best selves. Our next guest is someone who's been on the show many times, three times already. This is her fourth, and that's because she's one of my favorites and definitely a fan favorite as well. I am finding as I write my book, How to Talk to Kids About Anything, and write my chapters on talking to kids about mistakes and failure, dealing with big feelings, dealing with responsibility and self-reliance, coping with anxiety, The conversations that I've had with Amy Morin have come up again and again as I've been writing. So you will absolutely see Amy quoted in my book once it's released. And she even wrote a very supportive comment about my forthcoming book in my proposal, for which I am extremely grateful. Amy Warren is a psychotherapist and editor-in-chief of Very Well Mind, the biggest mental health website in the world. Her TEDx talk, The Secret of Becoming Mentally Strong, is one of the most viewed talks of all times with more than 16 million views. She's also an international best-selling author whose books on mental strength, including 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do, have been translated into more than 40 languages. Her new book is entitled 13 Things Strong Kids Do, Think Big, Feel Good, Act Brave. Welcome back, Amy, to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Oh, Robin, thanks so much for having me back. Well, I'm thrilled to have you. I love your new book. I read it cover to cover. I think it's going to be great for kids. I love how accessible it is. But before we dive in to 13 things strong kids do, can you tell us what shifted your writing from focusing on adults in the last three books to addressing tweens directly in your latest book? Why this book for tweens right now? Well, it was really came from the questions that my readers were asking. I had so many parents saying, how do we teach this to young people? Which is why I had written the parenting book as my second book. 
But I just kept hearing from more readers who just kept saying, if I had only learned these things sooner, mm. I want, really want something for my kids. And we know that older teenagers can read the adult book and benefit from it. But a lot of the examples in that are about work, about relationships, about more adult content. I didn't have anything out there specifically for tweens. And we know, oh, tweens go through so many, so much, so many rough times. Mm -hmm. And I have two of them, you remember. I have two tweens right now. So I'm like, yep, yep, yep. Yes. While running, even, you know, I think back to my own childhood. Gosh, I would have loved to have had a book Mm -hmm. like this. And even though I didn't have to deal with social media pressures, I didn't have to deal with a, Mm -hmm. a pandemic, a lot of the things kids are dealing with now. So I was thrilled my publisher agreed. Now is the time to come out with this book. And of course, we came up with the idea before the pandemic struck. And and I started writing it in the first couple of weeks of quarantine, thinking that the pandemic would long be over before the book ever hit the shelves. Little did I know the timing was going to be such that by the time it hit the shelves, we're still going to be in the in the middle of this. You are right. And we need it more than ever. So I'm so glad that the book is here and you know, my kids, I get so many books coming to the house all the time. Every week, several books come to the house from different publishers. And when this came in, it came with another book also uh, that was geared towards parents. And my children were just like leafing through really quickly. And they're like, this one looks so much better, you know, talking about your book. And I'm thinking, you know, the type is much bigger. It's like more accessible. It's like, you know, you have different types of fonts in here and pictures. And of course, it's going to be appealing to the tween age group is perfect. The other book was, you know, a great book, but just happened to be towards parents. So no pictures. In your book, one of the themes that you look at, and actually it's really throughout, is on looking at your thoughts, your feelings, and your actions. And you're asking tweens to recognize some of their negative thoughts, their negative emotions, and their negative actions, and find ways to move themselves forward by changing their thoughts or how they're feeling or how they're acting. For example, in the first chapter, Strong Kids Stop Feeling Sorry for Themselves, you talk about dealing with sad thoughts versus self-pity thoughts, changing blue thoughts, which we've talked about before in a previous podcast, changing blue thoughts to true thoughts, and doing things that will change your mood. So can you talk about how these tweens who are dealing with so many frustrations, frustrating situations, how they can change their thoughts, their emotions, and their actions in order to positively deal with those frustrating situations rather than getting buried by them? Yeah, I really wanted kids to know a couple of things. Number one is that their brain lies to them sometimes. Mm. So just because they think, oh, I'm the worst soccer player on the field or nobody likes me doesn't make it true. So I wanted every chapter to have exercises. How do you think differently? How do you challenge those negative thoughts? What do you do when you start thinking that way? So that you can think more realistically. And I don't want kids to walk into situations being overly confident because if you think, oh, I'm going to pass that math test on Thursday, it's going to be so easy. You might not study. I want mm-hmm. them to have a realistic outlook of, all right, the test is hard, but here's what I'm going to do about it. And then when it comes to the emotional part, I want kids to know it's okay to feel whatever they're feeling. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to be embarrassed but that they don't have to stay stuck in those emotions when they aren't serving them well. Sometimes sadness helps them heal. Sometimes disappointment can help us learn to do better next time. So it's okay to feel those things and to embrace them, but I wanted to show them that sometimes your feelings are a friend, sometimes they're an enemy, which Mm -hmm. is one of the exercises in the book. And then when your emotions aren't serving you well, how do you change your mood? How do you act your way out of it? How do you take action in a way that's gonna be helpful? 
And then the third part, as you say, is action. And so I wanted kids to know that they do have the ability to either solve the problem or solve how they feel about a problem. Mm. And every chapter in the book contains pretty simple strategies for saying, okay, how do I solve this? How do I tackle this head on? What's something I can do? Even if I can't fix the problem, what could I do to feel better about the problem? With just real actionable strategies, because we know when kids realize that they have choices, that there are things that they can do, they feel empowered to, to feel better. And when they looked at studies with kids who struggle with depression, for example, they tend to lack problem solving skills. And because they feel like, oh, I forgot my homework, I'm going to fail, this isn't going to go well, my parents are going to be mad, and they don't take any kind of action, versus a kid who says, ah, I forgot my math book at school, what could I do about it? I could call a friend, I could call my teacher, I could uh, message somebody else, I could ask my parents to drive me back to school. I mean, there's 101 different potential possibilities, but when kids at least know I, there's something I can do about this problem, it empowers them so that no matter what challenges they face in life, they then have the confidence to know, I can do something about it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it, it and they are very actionable steps, like you said. So for example, when you talk about dealing with sad thoughts versus self-pity thoughts, or those blue thoughts versus true thoughts that you just mentioned, like what is the difference between a sad thought versus a self-pity thought? Um, and how do they affect a tween while they're trying to problem solve? So when a kid is sad, let's say they failed their science test. A sad thought is, oh, geez, I didn't do very well on this test. Uh, my math, my science grade isn't very good. Uh, my friends did better than I did. Those are all sad thoughts. A self-pity thought is when you think, oh, I'll never pass science class. I'm the dumbest kid in the whole school. Mm -hmm. It's when you start to exaggerate how bad it is and you underestimate your ability to cope. Mm -hmm. Like, I can't stand this. I can't go to school tomorrow because I'm too embarrassed. Uh, and then overestimate how big of a problem it is when you start thinking, this is terrible. I'm never going to get a job someday. I'm never going to graduate high school. I won't mm -hmm. even pass the sixth grade. Hmm. Uh, so when we start to have those kinds of thoughts, it encourages us to stay inactive when we don't do anything about it. We sort of become helpless and hopeless and we stay stuck. Mm -hmm. And so when we see kids do this, and we do it as adults too, this is something I talk about in my adult books, but when we start to throw a pity party for ourselves, it's like we just want to look for excuses about why we shouldn't have to do anything. This isn't fair. Uh, it's not my fault and there's nothing I can do about it. And when we start to get into that place, sometimes we just start looking for other people to support us in that decision. When we call a friend and say, oh, listen to what happened to me today, this is awful. And if somebody says, well, why don't you try X, Y, or Z? We're really quick to be all, nope, that won't work. Right. <laughs> or you don't understand. Uh, and that's a really a sign that we're uh, stuck in a place of self-pity. And it's not helpful because it just makes it so that we don't uh, do any, we don't take any action, we don't do anything about it, and we don't try to make our lives any better. Right. And we also tend to hear those kids maybe blaming somebody else. So now they failed the science test and it's because the, the teacher is stupid. The book didn't tell them what to do. And they put push everything outward. That makes it so they have a clear excuse of how they can't do anything to get them out of, out of that hole. There's nothing that they can do and that everybody should see that the world is conspiring against them. Is that correct? 
that's it exactly and so we just start looking for more evidence about why this isn't fair why it's not my fault and why i shouldn't have to take any kind of action or do anything about it yeah it makes it much easier that way so you deal with friendship challenges in your book for a few chapters it it revisits itself throughout the book and of course it does because that's something that tweens deal with all the time One of them is when friendships start to change, perhaps because the friends are saying mean things that are making that tween feel kind of crappy. And it's time to switch your friendship group. Not that those people are bad, you say, but that it's just not serving you in the same way anymore. And I've certainly seen these changes happening and it can be hard to let go. Sometimes our kids might wonder if they're you know, if they're going to find another friendship group, so they hold on or they remember how it once was, you know, oh, I really did like these people and they used to be this way or I used to feel this way. So they hold on and they think their friends might be right. So, you know, about them or what the things they're saying. So they don't feel like changing friends because why would that make a difference? So you talk about some strategies such as coming up with a catchphrase, thinking before you feel so that you can recognize the good or bad criticism and using empowering words that help you realize that only you have the power to choose how you feel. That's something that I say often. Nobody else can make you feel any which way. So can you talk more about some of these tools to empower yourself as a tween and deal with those friendship issues that might not be serving us in the best ways that they once did? Right. We hear so much about the drama of friendships Mm -hmm. when when kids are in middle school and and it makes sense because kids are growing they're changing they're kind of growing apart they're figuring out what their individual interests are and that kid that you were friends with in kindergarten might not be somebody you choose to be friends with in the sixth grade yet you find yourself still hanging out together and then you're like oh what do i do about this so uh, one of the things i talk a lot about is empowering yourself because so many kids are quick to say like oh my friend makes me feel so bad about myself or my friend makes me so mad. Mm-hmm. We just want to give them the language of your friend doesn't force you to feel bad about yourself. Your friend doesn't force you to feel angry. Those are your choices. And you do have choices in how you respond to them. And that gets into the think before you before you feel. So that when kids are really quick to, to lash out, to take a moment and say, okay, how am I feeling right now? Well, if you can say I'm, I'm angry, I'm frustrated, I'm embarrassed, I'm hurt. And just taking a minute, especially before you get feedback, if you have a friend who says you shouldn't wear that shirt, or when you're in the sixth grade, you're probably going to be really quick to say, well, you idiot, you shouldn't wear that shirt either. Or <laughs> something, you know, where we just want to lash out. And it's important to, to take a moment and remember that you're in control of how you behave and to take a moment to recognize how you're feeling and then think, okay, what, what are the words that are going to come out of my mouth and what do I want to say and how can I do this? And I just want kids to know that they can't empower themselves to speak up sometimes but to know that they don't always have to speak up sometimes staying quiet is the best thing you can do mm-hmm. and that when you do have friendship issues that there are always solutions or things you can do whether you choose to confront your friend you choose to uh, not talk to them for a couple of days you choose to to make new friends there's so many choices but kids it's so easy to feel stuck like oh I'm surrounded by these people we don't get along they make me feel bad nobody else likes me when I used to work in a middle school, that was the predominant issue kids always had when they came to talk was friendship issues. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of them, it was the same story over and over and over again. And and it was so disruptive because for kids, their friends are often their world. They're becoming such a huge part of their lives. And so to think 
when you think somebody doesn't like me or somebody's mad at me or I can't do this because my friend will get mad. It's really tough. And so if we could just give kids some of these skills and tools right now, I think it empowers them to say, okay, I can set limits with my friends. I can say no sometimes. I can speak up for myself. And I can tell my friends what I want. And it really gives them a opportunity to emerge as a leader rather than just a kid who follows all the other kids around. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it is really important for them to have some of these tools as they're growing and they're changing. And you talk a lot about change throughout your book. You know, this is this is a time of great change and they need to adapt to change. Sometimes change can be minor, like, you know, they have to switch a class or adjust to a change in the schedule uh, that particular week. Other times it's, you know, more sweeping, like a big move to a different state. I did this with my family this past year uh, during a pandemic, like a crazy person. Or uh, it could be a divorce that can be tough on everybody. And you challenge kids to start using problem-solving steps. So if a child is dealing with a divorce, let's say, and the issue is that maybe the child feels that they don't have enough time with one parent anymore, they don't get to see them enough, how could they apply this steps idea of problem solving in order to cope with this change or address the change? Oh, good question. So STEPS is an acronym uh, that really just helps kids. All right, when I'm, when I'm uncomfortable with something, here's what I can do about it. And the S in STEPS is say what the problem is. So in this scenario, the problem is I don't get to spend enough time with one of my parents or I feel bad that I don't spend as much time as I'd like. So then the T is think about possible solutions. So they might decide I could talk to my the parent I spend more time with and let them know how I'm feeling. I could talk to the other parent. I could ask if I could split my time differently or when I'm at that parent's house, I could ask if we could do spend more quality time together. I just always encourage kids, see if you can come up with five potential solutions. Mm -hmm. They don't even have to be good solutions. It could be off the wall ones that you think will never work, but just see if you can come up with five. And because often kids will say, that's impossible. I can't do that. But once they start going, they usually come up with 10 or uh, it's much easier once they get started. And again, when we practice this skill, it gets easier over time. So that's the T. Think of uh, some potential solutions. The E in steps is evaluate what's good and bad about each one. You take each of those examples and you say, all right, well, what could I do? Maybe asking my mom to spend more time with my dad isn't a good idea because mom will get mad. All right. Maybe I ask dad if I can come to his house on more than just Friday nights and I ask if I could stay the night on Friday or if I can stay over on Saturdays too. May or may not work. But just a way to say, all right, what's the potential good and bad of each of those? And then you get to the P in steps, which means pick one. After you evaluated the good and bad, go ahead and try one. So maybe you decide, all right, I'm going to talk to, uh, maybe you decided I'm going to talk to grandma about this because I don't know which parent is going to be more receptive to this. So I'll talk to grandma about it and see what happens. And then the S is see if it worked. So you go talk to grandma and say, this is how I'm feeling. What do you think? And uh, see if she has any solutions for you or a strategy, or maybe she'll talk to one of your parents. If it doesn't work, you find a different one to do. Mm -hmm. And when kids know, all right, I have this process so that I can solve, no matter what the problem is, a friendship issue, an academic issue, a parent issue, a divorce issue, I at least have a strategy that I can employ Again, it empowers them to know that they can take some kind of action. When we know that we can take action, we feel better. We don't just like to sit around and think our problems are, are too big and there's nothing we can do about them. We start to feel better when we start to know, all right, I can at least plan something or I can create some kind of change or at least help myself feel better. Absolutely. And I think that is a really terrific solution, this whole idea of steps. 
and allowing the kids to have some agency that they are able to come up with some things on their own, that they can pick things on their own. And yes, of course, they may be asking for help. That may be one of their strategies, but their thoughts and going through it is preparing them to deal with bigger problems later on. And this is not any small problem. We're talking about divorce right here, but that it's something that they're practicing so that as they're getting older, they have a procedure to follow no matter what the issue is. And and that can help them to uh, be able to solve things more and more on their own. So that's great. Now, anxiety has increasingly become an issue among teens and tweens. And one of the areas that you concentrate on when talking about things strong kids do is that they focus on things that they have control over instead of ruminating, which is a big problem for this age group, but throughout life, but ruminating on bad things that could happen or that did happen in the past. And you talk about changing the channel to something better in your mind, scheduling time to worry and charging your batteries. So if you have a child who is constantly focused on things that are out of their control and worries a great deal, can you tell us what we might teach them about some of these techniques to help shift them out of this negative ruminating cycle and onto things that they can control? Yes. So if you have a child who's worries about everything, like what's, what if it rains on Saturday and I can't have that outdoor party? Or what if nobody shows up to my party? Or what if uh, my friends are mean to me? They can't control other people. They can't control the weather. They can't control a lot of the things going on around them. So you want to teach them, well, what can you control? Your attitude, your effort, your own behavior. And when you have a kid, though, who's really worried about something like, oh, what if that test on Friday is really hard? What if it rains and I can't play soccer. You want to teach them to change the channel in their brain if they're ruminating, rehashing. Uh, This is helpful too if you have a kid who replays something that happened maybe last week. Like Mm. remember that game when when the umpire made that unfair call and they keep talking about it. The more you talk about it, it doesn't necessarily do them any good. They might just stay stuck in that place. So you want to teach them, let's change the channel in your brain. So you might play a game for a couple of minutes just to get their mind off of it. You might say, let's go outside and run around. Let's go do something else for a few minutes. Let's uh, play a board game. And then you point out to them, notice how when you were sitting on the couch and you just kept thinking about that thing and you felt awful. Well, how do you feel now? Now when you're playing a game for a few minutes, your mood seemed to get better. You seemed a little happier. And then you teach them to do that on their own. And so it might be coming up with a list of five things that they can do to change the channel in their brain themselves. Okay, when I'm thinking about the same thing over and over again, maybe it's helpful to play video games for a couple of minutes. Maybe it's helpful to go outside and go for a walk. Maybe I should pick three yellow flowers outside. But if they then know, all right, when my thoughts aren't helpful, and you tell yourself, well, just don't think about that. Well, Mm. we're bad at this. Adults are bad at this too. When you have a bad day and you think, oh, just don't think about that conversation. Yeah. You'll think about it more. And so when we tell kids, just stop thinking about that. It's not helpful. We need to give them an activity to do. And and for kids, if they can create a list of five things that help them change the channel, and then they keep that list handy, and then they can start to recognize, all right, I'm perseverating on something that I can't control. I'm going to go get my list and I'm going to go find three yellow flowers outside, or I'm going to write the alphabet backwards with my non-dominant hand could be silly challenges like that but just something that gets them active and gets their brain onto a different message for a few minutes can be really helpful and it's a great skill for all of life 
Mm. I think that's great. And we always know that there are many parents that come to us and say, you know, that their kids are ruminating and they're worriers. And so having some active things to do is great. I, I often talk about needing to find something that you can go towards rather than run from, you know, so you're like, how can I get this thought out of my head? You know, and I just don't think about it. That's, that's one of those things where you're like trying to run from it. But when you have something to do, you're going towards something and you're giving them something constructive to do. So that can really reshape how they're thinking. And it's wonderful. Now, you talk also about taking healthy risks and not shying away from new things in your book. Of course, tweens and teens can also wind up taking a lot of unhealthy risks that can cause injury to themselves, to others. They can lead to negative consequences. How can we teach our kids the difference between healthy and unhealthy risks? And how can they use some of your techniques like arguing the opposite, testing the anxiety alarms, or listening to their shoulder angels to deal with those things and, and help them? Yeah, that's a, I'm gl- glad you asked because kids are so weird when it comes to risk, right? You might have a 10-year-old a who's willing to do a stunt on their skateboard without thinking twice. Mm-hmm. You ask that same kid to, to join a new soccer team and they're like, oh, I can't do that. That's scary. <laughs> and and as adults, we're like, what? what's wrong with you? Go do it. And we don't really teach them how to calculate risks. So one of my favorite exercises, it's one that I do in my therapy office too, is to teach kids about their anxiety alarms and for them to know that we all have false alarms. As adults, we have false alarms too. Our alarm bells might ring really loudly when we're say giving a speech, your boss says, get up and give this presentation. Our heart might beat fast. Your palms get sweaty and you think I can't do this yet. We could drive to work in a car going 60 miles an hour where there's a chance of death and (laughs) yet it's not, it doesn't feel scary. And yet getting up and giving a speech might feel as though you're in a life or death situation. Kids do the same. A stunt on their skateboard might not feel scary, but yet something that does feel scary, like going someplace new, meeting new people, might put them in a state of panic. So we need them to know, okay, sometimes your anxiety alarm doesn't kick in when it should. When your friend says, hey, I dare you to jump off that bridge, and it should kick in and say, hey, that's a bad idea. But there's other times when your anxiety alarm bells ring a little too loud and they're telling your body starts to panic, even though it doesn't need to, that getting up in front of the class to present your science fair project is not a life or death situation, but your body might react like it is. And so it's important for them to be able to step back and say, is this safe or is it not safe? And if it's a safe situation, like going to a new soccer practice or getting up in front of the class, that even though their body's reacting as if it's life or death, they can still take those risks anyway. And if we start teaching kids that from a young age, they'll learn, okay, how do I calculate this risk from a logical level? And how do I recognize that just because something feels scary doesn't necessarily mean that it's actually risky? Mm, Yes, absolutely. And What is this arguing the opposite idea? How do we use that for risk taking? So often, you know, if you have a kid who comes to you and says, oh, I'm going to embarrass myself at my dance recital. As parents, we're quick to say, oh, no, honey, you're going to do great. And then they sort of learn to depend on us. Like, Mm -hmm. okay, when my anxiety alarm's ringing loudly and I'm thinking all these catastrophic things, I just go to mom or dad and ask them for the truth. We don't want them to always depend on us to regulate that for them. We want to teach them that they can do that for themselves. And one strategy is to teach them just to argue the opposite. So when you think, oh, I'm going to embarrass myself at the recital or I'm going to be the only kid who 
uh, doesn't get any points in the game. Argue the opposite. What might the opposite be? I'm going to get the most points in the game, or I'm going to completely crush this recital. I'm going to get an A-plus on my test. And while that might not be an accurate statement, it just helps them to realize, all right, there's more than one possible reason for this, or there's more than one potential outcome, and that their brain is only dwelling on the worst-case scenario. Or if you have a kid who sends a text message and their friend doesn't reply and they automatically think, oh, they must be mad at me. Well, that's one potential reason, but what are some other potential reasons? Maybe they're busy. Maybe their phone is, battery's dead. Uh, maybe they haven't checked their phone today. Just for kids to know, okay, I can think of 101 different reasons. And if when I do that, it just reminds me that the one, the first thing my brain came up with isn't necessarily a fact. Mm. It's a very good point. And what I often find having tweens myself, but also talking to this age group is that when we provide the answer, like, oh, no, you're going to do great. They can argue against that until they're blue in the face. But when they come up with it on their own, that is much more likely to have teeth. Tweens are, I mean, not all tweens, but mine, definitely, but many that I know can argue until they're blue in the face. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. And just like you say, we want that other voice to come from them so that they can learn all right how do I reframe my own negative mm -hmm. thoughts how do I talk back to this voice myself so that they have those skills tools strategies so that later on in life when you're not there to calm them down or to tell them no honey you'll be fine we want them to know how do I say that to myself or what are some other other things I can come up with so that I know my brain isn't a hundred percent accurate all the time yeah I remember in your in one of the chapters you cite some research about saying your name and whatever you wanted to say related to like, no, Max, I think it was, you're going to do great. Can you tell us a little bit more about that like extra facet that if they say their name and along with the encouragement that it can, it can really stick and help? Yeah, it sounds simple. That sounds so simple. It almost sounds like it can't be true, but in our own heads, we either say to ourselves like, oh, I'm such an idiot, or maybe you use you, oh, you're such an idiot every time you mess up. But there's something that takes a lot of the emotion out of it when we call ourselves by name. So if I were to say, okay, Amy, just get up there and do your best. Something about that triggers our brains to take a lot of the emotion out of it. And it's like we're cheering ourselves on. Mm -hmm. And uh, I give the example of LeBron James when he was talking in a press release about, okay, LeBron James has to do what's best for LeBron, something to that effect. Mm -hmm. And people thought the guy was nuts for referring to himself in the third person. <laughs> but upon further examination, we discovered that, uh, again, calling yourself by, by your own name, almost like it grabs your attention in a different way, takes the emotion out of it and gives you this extra push. It's almost as if somebody else is cheering mm -hmm. you on because your mom, your cousin, somebody else is probably going to call you by name, your friend. And so when you call yourself by name, it's like it grabs you, grabs your attention a little bit more and you can give yourself this little pep talk. So if we teach kids, call yourself by name and then give yourself a little pep talk, it comes from within and they don't then rely on us to always be like, no, Max, you've got this. And then they can say that to themselves. Yeah, yeah. And that is really encouraging. And tweens have so much to offer. They're really growing and changing and, and they can surprise you in such beautiful ways. Now, we know that tweens and teens and, and really... I would say many adults, including myself at times, can be prone to comparing themselves to others. And when we do that, we often come up short because we are 
not to be cliche, comparing our everyday to somebody else's highlight reel, or as you say in the book, comparing our insides to somebody else's outside that those people are choosing to show to the world. So when it comes to being envious of how someone looks or how popular they are or what they have or how skilled they seem, it's easy to feel inferior and to lose confidence and to imagine that they have it all together and we don't. So we often focus on these comparisons when dealing with body image, I would say is one, as well as when we're dealing with other facets of tween and teen life, um, how good they are at a particular sport, how academically inclined they are, how artistic they are. How do we talk to our kids about these comparisons and how detrimental they are and also how we can help them to realize that we aren't seeing everything. This isn't a competition and and act, and as you say, act like the person you want to be rather than focus on what's lacking. Yeah, you know, again, this is a tough one, even for us adults, yes. we look at social media and we think, oh, that person has uh, more money than I do, that person has a happier life, that person looks better than I do. Of course, for tweens, it's tough, extra tough, because they're looking around at all of these people who are just putting their best foot forward. We know that social media is so fake so often. Mm-hmm. And yet they're buying it all like, oh, this person never has any problems. This person's life is wonderful. So we just want to, first of all, educate them on knowing, all right, this isn't necessarily reality. And and that they can look at other people more like opinion holders rather than competitors. So if they're hmm. if somebody they know is is doing well, it doesn't necessarily take it away from them. Or the other kid in the class got an A plus and you got a B plus, that doesn't mean that you can still get an A plus on the next test. There, there's plenty of A pluses to go around but that you might be able to learn from that person. It's not that they're better than you are. It's not that they took something away from you. It's that perhaps they have some skills, some knowledge, some tools that you could learn from. Mm-hmm. And when kids can look at it like that, they're not jealous anymore and that they can then start to celebrate other people's success. And that's hard to do. But when they do that and they realize, gee, I really like it when people are happy for me, but I can be happy for other people too. And if I want to be a say happier kid I have to act happier and sometimes it's about changing their behavior first or a kid who says I want to be confident you don't just sit on the couch and suddenly get granted confidence sometimes you have to go out there and say what would a confident kid do they would look people in the eye they might shake their hand they might say it's great to see you if they act that way first the behavior the feelings often follow so it's really about teaching kids who who do you want to be and it's not about saying I want to be like my best friend it's like how do you want to be your best self and what would that look like would you be a more confident person a happier person would you be a smarter person and then to just start practicing those things and when they keep their eyes on their own lane they're less distracted by what's going on around them yeah and I know that in your book you also provide some perspective which I think is really important through the story but that sometimes we wind up thinking somebody has it all together when you know they're falling apart in a whole different way and when we feel like oh I can't be happy for them because you know they did so well on this and I didn't or they seem to have all the friends or everybody you know loves that person and they have you know a boyfriend or a girlfriend or whatever it is that they are you know, coming up with and then you come to realize that that person has struggles too that person is dealing with the divorce like in your book or they have some other challenge that you may not have ever known about and that can really help how can you bring that into the conversation with with your tween who may feel like they're constantly comparing themselves to somebody else. 
So sometimes it might be as simple as saying, okay, when you find out a celebrity maybe has a problem, we know a lot of celebrities these days are stepping forward and talking about their struggles with mm-hmm. mental health or that they've had problems, or maybe there's a, a tween celebrity whose parents have gotten divorced. You might have those conversations with your kids, and then you might look at that person's Instagram profile together and say, based on this, would you ever know that this person is struggling with these problems? Mm. Just to show kids, okay, this isn't necessarily reality, that the pictures are always about Disney World or living in a mansion. And behind that, there are problems. We just don't see those on social media. Or for kids to know, too, that the other kids in their class, maybe the kid, the most popular kid, or the kid who seems to be the smartest, probably has a lot of the same feelings, the insecurities, the struggles, even though they might not look like it, you just don't know it. And having more of those conversations with kids, I think, can be eye-opening because as a therapist, I have a revolving door of kids who think, I'm the only one who's insecure, Mm -hmm. nobody else understands what I'm going through. And if only they knew that they're actually the fourth kid in a row who said very similar things and that they have very similar experiences, it's just none of them talk about it. Mm. So if your kid is saying those things, what would you say back to them? So it might be a matter of saying, of explaining to them or even asking questions like, do you think so-and-so has never felt insecure? Mm. Uh, Do you really think that uh, this other kid maybe is happy all the time? What would be wrong with being happy all the time? What would happen if somebody actually were happy all the time? Well, Mm. You have to be sad sometimes to enjoy being happier, just to open the door to conversations. Mm. And I think asking questions is one of the best things you can do. Like, do you really think that that's the case all the time? Mm -hmm. And most kids can then be like, well, no, probably not all the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just as a way to open the door to conversation. And do you think other kids maybe feel the same way you do, but they just don't talk about it? And uh, I think when kids have those conversations and they say things out loud, it becomes a little more real to them of, all right, it's unrealistic to think somebody's happy all the time. Right. And we're privileged to know how we feel all the time. Exactly. (laughs) We know all of our feelings. We just don't know everybody else's. And you describe uh, an activity or really a way of framing things with this shoebox idea of, of what's on the inside and what's on the outside. Can you explain that to our listeners? Yeah, it's one of the funner activities I do in my therapy office where I'll ask kids to take a shoebox and put on the inside of the shoebox how they really feel on the inside and then to put on the outside of the shoebox something that represents how maybe they show themselves to the outside world so sometimes we use magazines uh, they'll cut out pictures or we use uh, different different ways that they can express themselves some kids draw some kids write little poems and then we talk about well would your uh, classmates be be surprised at what's on the inside of your shoebox because it might be like well I'm scared of the dark uh, mm. I, I feel really bad about myself or I'm embarrassed about the size of my nose whole list of things uh, our pictures and then on the outside of the box it's often like a picture of a cat or a picture of uh, things they like to do on the weekends they play soccer they play basketball and we talk about the difference between the inside and the outside what they show to other people versus how they feel and then we talk about who are the people who wouldn't be surprised to see on the inside some kids might say my parents really know this or i have a best friend who knows this but beyond that they could say yeah my teacher doesn't know the uh, kids that i don't really sit with at lunch would have no idea that i feel this way so we talk about okay so only a couple people realize this about you if anybody some kids say yeah i've never really told anybody that i struggle with this Let me say, well, what about other kids if they had a shoebox? Do you think that you're just seeing the outside and maybe they have something different on the inside? Hmm. For a lot of kids, that's really eye-opening for them to realize, oh, yeah, I don't share share what's on the inside with 
with all the kids at school either. So maybe the other kids are experiencing something similar. Mm, Absolutely. I did some exercises with my girls group and had them draw themselves, you know, like a self portrait and had them put all the things that I showed on the outside on the front of the picture. And then on the back of the picture, it was all the things that they kept on the inside, you know, it kind of was like a flip of, um, you know, what's in your heart, your brain. And I think it it is an eye-opening experience for them not only to see what they put there, but to see that other people, because we had a group, that other people also had the same kind of thing and were willing to then share with the group some of the things that were on the inside and realize that some of these things they have in common with other people and, and that we're all struggling. And I think that that can be very powerful for our tweens. Um, and I imagine you see that all the time. Definitely. I like the idea of doing that with a group when you have the luxury of doing that. Yes. Because I think kids are like, oh, yeah, gosh, we experience a lot of the exact same things. Yes. But we've never had this conversation before. Exactly. That's one of those powerful things. Now, when when setting goals, uh, which, of course, is, is an important thing that strong kids do and strong adults do, many kids might give up before they get to the finish line. And a question that I often get from parents who are listening to this podcast has to do with frustration because they keep putting their kids in different activities. I just got one like literally like a week ago that was talking about like, how, how is it that like I keep putting my kid in like an activity that they say that they want to do, but then it gets tough or, you know, they've gone like once or twice. Now I want to quit. So you talk about writing yourself a kind letter, writing reasons to keep going, creating measurable goals. So how specifically can we help our tweens who may be prone to doing these kinds of things use tools to keep going even when it gets challenging or boring or annoying or they're in a valley? Like how do we get them to keep going? Oh, good question. So out of all of the 13 things, we pulled parents and found that persistence is the number one thing that kids seem to be struggling with Mm -hmm. and parents are saying this has gotten worse since the pandemic started so and it's super important we know that delayed gratification that persistence uh grit all of those things are super important for kids later in life and in today's world it's tough we live in an amazon kind of world where you can get anything delivered to your door in 24 hours Mm -hmm. if you want and we don't really have to wait But yet when your child wants to learn how to play a new musical instrument or they want to get better at soccer or they want to figure out how do you get better grades in math, it's not going to happen in in two hours. They need to practice. (laughs) And that's where the real work comes in. And so you might assign something to your child. And I'm I'm not saying that we shouldn't let kids quit because I think that there's value in that when Mm -hmm. kids say, you know, I thought I was going to like playing the saxophone and I hate it. We don't want to make them think that they have to do it for the next seven years, Mm -hmm. even though they completely hate it because they're never going to try anything else because they think, oh, mom or dad's going to make me stick with it for life. So that can backfire. But we do want to make them stick it out for a little while. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's you just say you don't actually know if you like something until you've tried it for 30 days or for half the school year. Um, And make sure that they're always doing something that's kind of hard and Mm -hmm. takes a while to do. And so when we do that it just teaches them yep this is hard work yeah it's boring to practice yeah nobody likes this we all want to be good at something but we don't want to put in the work to get good and and for them to know that it's supposed to be hard and if it were easy then we'd all do it and talk about the emotions that come with it oh gee I don't feel like doing this today yep and it's hard to do when you don't feel like it isn't it 
But to have those conversations and the exercise in the book that I really like about this is for kids to write themselves a kind letter. And it might just be a couple paragraphs, maybe it's two sentences, but it's just about, okay, life is tough, but but you can do this. And when they start motivating themselves a little bit more and it comes from their words so that when they feel like quitting, instead of us saying to them, no, you can do it, we just say, pull out your letter and read it. And mm -hmm. it comes from their own words. And then when it comes from their own words, uh, then they know, okay, I can motivate myself even when mom or dad aren't there to do it for me. So important. And again, when it's is in their own words, then it's the truth, right? I mean, they can't argue against themselves. So exactly. it makes it much easier and much more powerful. So give us your top tip. What would you want kids and parents to come away with after reading your book, after listening to this podcast, so that we we know that these are the things that strong kids need to do. These are the changes that I need to make. And if I adopt these practices that I can do some pretty great things. What, what is your top tip? I guess to treat mental strength like we do physical strength, that it takes exercise and, and we have to keep practicing at it. There's always room for improvement. So I think if parents and kids just adopted one exercise to try every month, maybe you say, okay, let's try this one exercise and we're going to practice it all month long. And the next month you try a different exercise. After a while, kids will build their own toolbox and they may have three or four exercises that are kind of their go-to strategies and a couple that they can use when they really need them. But we just want to make sure that they have some skills in their, in their toolbox that they know that they can rely on. And they'll take it with them forever. It'll be things that work well in high school. The same skills they, that work well when you're in the sixth grade will work in college. It'll work in your future job. But kids will just feel more empowered to know, uh, I, can, I can do this. I can think differently. I can feel differently. And I have the power to take positive action no matter what life throws my way. Mm. That is very powerful. And I do like the idea of taking one per month because otherwise sometimes it feels a little overwhelming and they may not get the practice that they need with any particular exercise. I love that. Give us the resource of the week. Where can we go to get more information about you and your books and the current work you're doing? So my website is the best place and the address is Amy Morin, LCSW is in licensed clinical social worker.com. Excellent. Well, I'm sure people will get to that. And I will, of course, have that in my show notes. And I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing your insights and your strategies uh, so that our kids can become stronger and that they're able to read this themselves. They're able to empower themselves. What a wonderful resource for them. And knowing that the, there are books for us too. So I really appreciate all of the great work you've been doing on mental strength and will continue to be doing in this field. Well, thank you so much for having me again on your show, Dr. Robin. I love it. Well, I'm going to say thank you. And I've got my takeaways and sweet friends. I know you have yours. So let's discuss them. Come up on Facebook and go to the Dr. Robin Silverman page and let's chat about it. DrRobinSilverman.com or Twitter.com slash Dr. Robin. I'm also on Instagram under Dr. Robin Silverman and Amy is on Instagram as well. We'll be going back and forth on all social media. You know I create memes and go back and forth with all the great things that Amy has been saying today so that you can share them with your friends. Those memes are great for shareables and reminders. You can print them out. I've been hearing people printing them out and putting them up on their mirrors. Anything that's going to remind you of some of the great quotes 
uh, and great strategies that we can share with our kids and use ourselves. And if you love this podcast like I did, I can't stress enough. I so appreciate it when you go up to iTunes and rate and review it. Those five-star reviews make a huge difference in how people receive the information, how it's promoted. I know it seems ridiculous, but it is really important. And the more that we do that, then the strategies like those that came from Amy Morin today will be spread to more families. And I think that just makes more powerful and stronger kids. That sounds good to me. If you can do that, I truly appreciate it. That's all the time for we have for today. My fellow parents, leaders, and educators, thank you so much for tuning in to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please visit drrobinsilverman.com. There's so many great podcasts up there, and the show notes to this podcast will be up there as well. I look forward to weathering the storms and enjoying the sunny side of life together. And please remember, even on the days when you fall short, you've got this. You're here, you're getting the information you need. I know it's not easy, but never forget there's always tomorrow. Parenting is the ultimate do-over. So if you recognize something today that maybe you haven't talked about or maybe your child has been struggling with and you feel like you didn't do it right or you didn't give the right strategy, now you have some more information and you can always go back and revisit that issue. You can always talk to your child differently. You can always provide a different strategy. We can do it over and over and over again. I see you and I'm right there with you. And as there are moments when we doubt our know-how, our choices, and our sweet sanity, please know that you are 10 times the parent you think you are. Until next time, this is Dr. Robin Silverman with How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Please tune in again and keep connecting through conversation. See you next week. You've been listening to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please visit drrobinsilverman.com.